You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today. At the beginning, I was craving a boss. All I wanted was somebody to just tell me, I'm pounding my fist if you can hear it. I just wanted somebody to tell me what to do that day that would advance my business forward. I just wanted a boss. And it was the strangest feeling because at the same time, you forget all the bad stuff about bosses, right? You forget all the politics that you have to play and the the nuances of, oh, like, why did they say that? Did I do a bad job on that project because they inflected their voice that way or whatever? But, you know, you you tend to only remember the, the good stuff in hindsight. And so for the good, like, portion of the first year that I was working for myself, all I wanted was somebody to give me some kind of guidance and direction That was Christina Scalera, an attorney who wanted a more creative path and started The Contracts Shop, a contract template store for creative entrepreneurs, wedding professionals, and coaches. In this episode, we discuss her journey from the risk-averse field of law into entrepreneurship, the challenges she faced as a new entrepreneur, and how the way many of us think about the legal elements of our business is really out of sync with reality. If you like this episode, you might also like episode 78 with Ninja Commander Kyle Durand. You'll just have to listen to the episode to see why I call him Ninja Commander. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. Christina, thanks so much for joining me today. Why I'm excited about this conversation is you and some of the other attorneys that I talk to, and I've adopted the view as well, have this view about legal stuff being a way to enhance relationships as opposed to creating adversarial sort of complicated relationships. And so um, I'm excited to bring you on to talk about that and uh, to see where it goes. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me, Charlie. Okay, so people... Um, learn a little bit about who you are. Kind of tell us how you got started with the contract shop and how you went from sort of an attorney to this new sort of (laughs) entrepreneurial thing that you're doing. Sure. Well, I'm still an attorney. I still actually have a law firm. I think that's important. I know, um, you know, if you listen to Gary Vaynerchuk at all, he very concisely says that you need to eat your own, you know. Mm -hmm. So I still practice law because I I like to have my foot in that arena. But yeah, the contract shop has just taken off and it is definitely my more entrepreneurial side. Um, It really started by accident. So they're two separate businesses. And when I was running my law firm, one of the things that I noticed that kept coming up are friends that needed um, legal help, but they didn't necessarily need my full time and attention as an attorney, nor did they want to pay for that. Uh, The other thing that was happening at the same time is I had all these templates. Uh, Just running a law firm, you start to accumulate different templates that you're using over and over again, like in any business, right? You probably have email templates and blog templates and just things you're using over and over again. And I said, why can't I give these to my friends? So I did. I gave them to my friends and they came back and they're like, hey, I don't really understand some of this. So I kept like refining it, making it easier to understand. We'd go back and forth. Um, Today, they're some of my best affiliates, I'm proud to say. But yeah, I just was like, why am I not charging for this? Let me put it out there. See if if anybody is willing to buy this. I don't know, you know, Rocket Lawyer and LegalZoom exist, but these are a lot more nuanced. 
Um, so yeah, that, that was how the contract shop started. And now we have templates, like I said, very nuanced. Um, one of our best-selling templates is an equine photography template and a calligraphy template. Um, so just like really, really honed into the specific needs of the entrepreneur through not just my experience, my best friends, um, but also my experience in these fields, like a long story short, testing that out in between law school and what I'm doing right now. So that was how I got my start there. Great. And I just wanted to pull out that if you're in a um, creative services business, uh, business, especially if you deal with intellectual property, largely speaking, coaches, consultants, attorneys, um, accountants, like there's a, this whole wide range of creative services, um, you likely have what I need to call trap content. And, and you just mentioned some, Christina, this trap content that you have in your business that actually has market value that you're probably under leveraging. And so one name of the game, when you're trying to sort of scale your business, or you're trying to add some different revenue streams is to just look around for the trap content that you have and say, is there a market for this? Or would somebody buy this? And a lot of times it's stuff that you did two years ago that you would never think about, right? Because you're like, no one needs a XYZ. No one needs a memorandum of, of agreement template. Like they can go on and like, no one would need that. But it turns out people need that for <laughs> people need whatever that thing is. So just thanks for pulling that out. Because I think a lot of people get stuck and like, I've got to create this brand new thing, <laughs> as opposed to just doing what you've already been paid to do and figuring out how to, how to sell that somewhere else. Absolutely. And I think it's the best products are based on need. So if there's a need that people are asking for as stupid as you think it is, don't take it for granted because I, I just thought this was so stupid. Like, Oh, this is just a template that I use it over and over again. Who cares? And now there's inherent value in that we've had over 1300 sales in the last two years. I mean, it's just like something that I just took completely for granted was just such a, an asset that I built the entire business around. Absolutely. And it's a funny thing is, I mean, I work with a lot of coaching consultants and people like this, but it's one of those things where like, we forget that at some time somebody paid us to create that. So it had value at some time. Right. But then after we deliver it, it's like, it's valueless. But I was like, no, no, no. Somebody paid for that once. They would likely pay for it again. And when you mentioned that, you know, you got a, a niche business here, like when you went down to equine photography, I was like, wow, that is super niche as far as that goes. And so um, that's the other sort of strategy here is to take something that's pretty general and find a niche underserved market. And all of a sudden, I imagine people Google equine photography license or something like that. And that's how they find you. Is that how they find you? Or how do they find you? That's actually our best. Um, that's from that first girl that I told you I worked with and she needed a template. She's actually our best selling affiliate now for that. So most people, she's got a huge following on Instagram, just kind of an Instagram influencer and star at this point. And she just kind of shouts us out every once in a while. And instead of doing it for free, now she gets paid for it because we have an affiliate program at this point, um, which she likes a lot better, I think, especially now that she has a kid. Um, but yeah, so most people find us through our affiliates. They find us through our content. I don't want to say for sure, because I don't know when you out there listener are listening, but yeah, I'm pretty confident that if you Google equine photography or calligraphy contract or anything like that, we will be on the first page of Google because, um, our SEO is really good. And honestly, the trick to that is just creating content that people read and it puts us there. So yeah, I think you'll find us. <laughs> yeah. So most attorneys that I've met, um, tend to be more risk averse, right? Um, for a lot of different reasons. And so I'm wondering how, um, how 
Well, I'm wondering if you were naturally risk averse as an attorney and you got over it, or whether you were sort of risk tolerant and that led to entrepreneurship. Tell us about that relationship inside of you. Yeah, no one has asked me this before. I love this question, though. I feel like such an idiot in hindsight because my law school application essay, the thing that was going to make me stand out from everybody else, was all about how I'm willing to take risks and I'm you know, ready for whatever comes my way. And, you know, I did apply during the riskiest time possible to go to law school, I think, um, just with the recent recession and and the everything that was happening. But in hindsight, I remember being in my first year of law school and having every single teacher talk about during the first day of every single class, how risk averse we needed to be as attorneys. And I'm like, how did I get in? They just read this four page essay about how risk loving I am. I don't know who let me in or why that was a good idea for them. But so I've, I've never felt like it was, um, like I've never felt that super conservative aversion to risk. I think that most attorneys feel, which I don't know if that's stupid or bad or whatever, but it is what it is. Um, and I think even if I did at this point, I have enough entrepreneurial maturity to realize that the mission that I have and the impact that I want to make is so much bigger than my feelings around, Ooh, should I do this or not? So even if I did have that, I feel like at this point, hopefully if, if I was like that originally, I would have gotten over it. But yeah, I, I think naturally, I think that's what makes a great attorney. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I, I'm missing that component. <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know that it's true. I mean, you know more about great attorneys than I do, given your given your lineage. But I think when we look at really successful attorneys, and you look at really like people out there doing it, they are more risk tolerant. Um, and I use risk tolerant as opposed to risk loving because I mean, most of us you know, it's always trying to like minimize the downside of things, right? It's not like we're just like, I'm just going to pay no attention to the risk involved and jump into it. It's like, we know that they're a risk, right? Um, to any course of action, right? And so how can we, how can we mitigate that downside? So just tolerant. But like I said, I've met many, um, I get into, <laughs> I get into fights, not really fights, but accountants and attorneys sometimes can really, um, when I'm doing my consulting work can really be a pain in my butt, right? Because, <laughs> Uh, you know, on the accountant side of thing, and I think it's true for the lawyers on the accountant side of things, there's like, you know, a 1% conservative sort of thing, or a, like a, on the scale of one to 10, you have over on the left side, the zeros and the ones who like, will like make you dot every I and make you, you like do everything. And so running, you know, their mitigation scheme becomes its own business, right? It's own sort of time. And then you have on the other side, you have 10, which, you know, they'll get you in jail. Right, really quickly, right? Um, and so you don't want to be on the 10, but you don't want to be on the sort of zero one side either. Like, I like a good six and a half, seven. Like, you know, they, they sort of lean forward a little bit. They're aware of the risk, but they're not going to like, like every time that you say we need to do X, Y, and Z, they're like, well, you can't do that because because what about this? And what about that? And what about that? And then you get what about it to death? And so, I, you know, it's just really interesting to see the spectrum. And again, I think that's, um, what am I going to say? Especially for attorneys, now that you've mentioned it, like that they train you to be very risk averse. That's probably why we see more risk averse attorneys, right? Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that most attorneys and, and that's how you get through law school. That's how you pass the bars. You search out and seek like a 
issue-seeking missile, uh, the problems that are inherent in whatever pro like situation it is that you're facing. And that is literally how you get graded. In law school, you get one test at the end of every class. That's it. You don't get like three chances to make an A. You get one chance. And on the, the way to get an A on that test is just to look at the situation. You're giving probably like a one to two page essay to read, and you have to find all the issues. You have to find all the the risks, if you will, and point those out and then not only point them out, but talk about how you are going to change that or like what can apply to that to change that. So that's that's how you are trained to be an attorney. Like there's no class out there that teaches you how to file a trademark, which I wish there were, but there are no practical classes, unfortunately, in like 99% of law schools right now. So yeah, I think it's just so ingrained in you for like three years of your life. Um, and then, you know, even beyond that, when you get started right after you go into a firm and you're doing the same exact thing, just practically and in, in the real world. So it makes a lot of sense to me, but at the same time, I think I'm also very lucky in that I had an opportunity um, thanks to, sounds like a mutual friend, Chris Guillebeau. I read his book. My friend was in his book. And so she turned me on to his platform. And um, I just thankfully kind of saw a light at a point when I didn't have a mortgage and kids and all of the things that can lock me down. So it was good because I was coming from this, this background of like, oh my gosh, like everything I'm going to do is get me, it's going to get me disbarred and I'm going to go to jail. And I had all the feelings that everybody else does when they're starting their own businesses. Um, but, you know, I also knew that I didn't have maybe the weight of a family or a mortgage or those life circumstances. Um, so it was just me and, and my situation that I was putting at stake at the time, which I totally respect you moms, you dads, everybody out there that has kids, mortgages, all of those things. And I still think it's possible. It's just a matter of maybe an even stronger mindset than I had to cultivate at the time. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely balancing different priorities when you don't have those sort of things. You don't have the tensions, you don't have the role constraints, so on and so forth. So I'm with you. Like, you know, sometimes people will ask me like, how do I, how I get so much stuff done? And I'm like, well, one thing is just <laughs> Straight, straight up, I don't have kids, right? And and um, I'm not saying that as a virtue or vice. It's just the fact of the matter is, I you know that's not in play. Um, so there you are. You're in law school, and it's like, how did I get here? Because you know everybody's risk averse, and you know everything like that. And um, you know there's an inflection point, right, where you wanted to do something different. So tell us a little bit about that inflection point. Yeah, that actually came after law school. I had gotten a really good job right out of it, and I was very fortunate. I was one of my only classmates that did that. But unfortunately, um, yeah, I decided that I was having too many stress issues, problems, and like the really smart 25-year-old I was at the time, I just walked away. I'm like, screw this. I'm going to go do my own thing. You know, I'm amazing. I'm 25. I can do whatever I want. Uh, so at that point, I, I actually was having a lot of health issues and, um, part of it was because I was working full time while going to law school and then jumping right into this job and studying for the bar. And it was like this train, right. That like wouldn't stop. And that was really hard. So I think I just really hit like maximum burnout. So I don't mean to sound like the snotty bratty 25 year old, but at the same time, like I was under a lot of pressure and stress that I think most 25 year olds probably aren't under at that point. Um, and so I found Kelly Newsom, who at the time was a prenatal yoga teacher based in DC. She's featured in the hundred dollar startup. And since then we've become great friends. Um, she started as my, like my mentor and I'm like, 
and, and she started as a, as a business attorney, I should, I should say. And then she um, became a prenatal yoga in- instructor. So I'm like, I'm going to do just what Kelly did. Right. Um, you know, my, my plan in life was always like, okay, you're in middle school, you go to high school. Like you're in high school, you go to college. You're in college, you go to law school. You're in law school, you get a firm job. And now I was at this point where there was no next step. So I saw Kelly as the next step and attempted to emulate her. So that got me into the whole like yoga, everything community. But you guys may or may not know this. Yoga teachers don't make a lot of money, especially when they're starting out. (laughs) Yeah. So I had to figure out a way to actually make money. And my idea from the $100 startup, because Kelly had connected me to that, um, was to start a blog. So I started blogging and I started blogging about health and wellness and fitness. And bless you, fitness, health, everything out there. It is hard. So when I started blogging about like businessy type stuff, which I actually enjoyed more, and started incorporating like legal articles on this yoga blog, I don't know what I was doing. I was, this is three years ago. Um, that was how I started to get into the creative industry. And I started to make some friends with these equine photographers. And I had, you know, when you have a blog, you have to do your own photos, you have to do your own graphics, you have to be your own copywriter, you have to wear 80 million hats. So that was really how I got into the creative industry. And around this time, you know, not making any money, I started my own law firm in the background. Um, my partner who in the law firm and in life, he's, been, um, like a big wig attorney at all the firms and all the companies and things like that. So it's not like I was just starting from scratch. I was really lucky to have him. And we just started this firm together on the side. And then, like I said, the contract shop kind of bloomed out of that as a separate business. So it's not a law firm, but it's obviously legal information products. Do you consider yourself driven or ambitious? Absolutely. (laughs) Um, to a fault. Yeah, it's a problem. Tell (laughs) me a little bit more about that. Yeah. Um, well, there's lots of fights in our house about it. I tend to just like, I, I get into these work trances and I don't stop. Um, and it's, you know, there's always more to do. So it's 10 o'clock at night and I am like, I still have three hours of work left. I'm going to do it. And again, that train that was running when I was 25, like it hasn't stopped. It's just moving in a different direction. So it's very difficult for me to ever turn off Um, but that being said, I am pretty good at when like the work is done, the work is done. And I leave it there until the next morning at like eight 30 or nine or whenever I hit it back up. So are you finding, so, you know, what I'm teasing out here is, um, in a simple view, work made you sick, right? Um, in, in a very simplistic way of understanding. However, it doesn't seem like you're working any less than you did then. Oh, I'm definitely working more actually. It's a different kind of work. And it's so cliche. What's that saying? Like you'd rather work as an entrepreneur, you'd rather work 80 hours for yourself than 40 hours for somebody else. It's super cliche, but it's so true. And I think the reason is because I know that at any point I can stop and the momentum that I've built is going to carry me through. So for example, like Friday, or even this morning, this morning, I just like, didn't really feel like working until 11 o'clock. So I journaled and I like, did whatever. And I was like, yeah, I'll just finish the emails that I was going to do later. No big deal. Like that's the beauty about working for yourself, where if I were still in a big firm environment or working in house, there is like, there's none of that. You don't get to come in late to work, even if you're still working the same amount of hours in that day, because that's not acceptable. Um, so I think it's, 
it's interesting that you're teasing this out, but at the same time, if you just find work that lights you up and it's so cliche, I feel so cheesy saying this, but if you just find where you can make an impact and you can see that impact being made, it changes everything. Yeah. See, I'm just passing the cheese to you because I've said that so many times that, that I'm like, I'll, I'll let somebody else be uncomfortable saying the cliche stuff at this point. Uh, but no, it's absolutely true. I think, um, I don't know. I, I was just writing, writing on this this morning because um, I'm working on a book, but I think our understanding of work is so skewed because um, a lot of times when we think about work, we think about stuff we don't want to do. And when you start doing stuff that you actually do want to do or that you get to do or that makes you come alive, a lot of the notions that we have about work, you have to throw out the window, right? Uh, because it just doesn't apply. Um, however, what does still apply is that work can be tax. It can be taxing and it can, you know, it can um, be either draining or depletive depending upon what type of work it is. And so um, just wanted to draw that out because a lot of people, I think when they're thinking about starting a business or, or starting to do their own creative thing, um, they see the work as a huge barrier, right? Um, it doesn't help that there are books like Four Hour Work Week out, like that that have um, a a, a um, contrary position. Actually, if you read the book, it's not actually about about what you think it's about. But um, <laughs> they just see that as a huge hurdle. Like I'm not. That's going to take a lot of work, and you don't know that it's going to pay off. And you know, you see entrepreneurs running around like how do they live life? And just wanted to say, hey, it's different. It's different. And then, you know, it's like being a soldier, like you're, <laughs> you do that 16 hours on a shift or you do whatever. And it's just different than when you're doing stuff that doesn't really tie into who you are and, and the work that you're wanting to do in the world. Yeah. I, I mean, you said it really well, but this is why you write books. <laughs> really. uh, so, um, I am curious though, because it's often the case that when you do start working for yourself, it's great, but there might be things that you miss about not working for yourself. So what are those things? Yeah. At the beginning, I was craving a boss. All I wanted was somebody to just tell me, I'm pounding my fist if you can hear it. I just wanted somebody to tell me what to do that day that would advance my business forward. I just wanted a boss. And it was the strangest feeling because at the same time, you forget all the bad stuff about bosses, right? You forget all the politics that you have to play and the, the nuances of, oh, well, like, why did they say that? Did I do a bad job on that project because they inflected their voice that way or whatever? But, you know, you, you tend to only remember the, the good stuff in hindsight. And so for the good, like, portion of the first year that I was working for myself, all I wanted was somebody to give me some kind of guidance and direction um, and it was really hard and expensive to seek that out on my own. I think I sought that out in a lot of different ways that I couldn't afford at the time. So conferences, workshops, courses. Um, I also sought that out in ways that were counterproductive. So for example, um, you know, as you're getting started, it's this honeymoon phase that feels so amazing. And I really regret not enjoying it more because I was so busy trying to find how to do Facebook ads, how to blog more, how does somebody put together their content? What does their morning look like? How do they brush their teeth? Like, I just wanted to know the, the subtle nuances and details about everybody's life as if that would unlock the secret. Um, so I was pulled in a lot of different directions and that was really counterproductive to try to learn, like to follow Tim Ferriss and follow Marie Forleo at the same time, who are two very different people. So 
what started to help was when I did decide like, no, actually less is more. I'm only going to follow two people at a time. And I still have this role to this day. And it's, it's really been helpful because for example, this year I I'm in my mastermind, um, which is like a super high level offering. And it's really tempting to go outside of that mastermind and look to other mentors and to look to other business influencers and leaders and see what they're doing. Oh, they're using chatbots. I should use chatbots. Oh, they're, they're going back to using webinars. I guess webinars are working again. I should do that. And so it's very difficult, but I have to stay disciplined and I have to remind myself, I've chosen this mentor for this mastermind and I'm following her. I'm doing what she does. I'm following her advice. Um, I'm just going to put my blinders on and ignore everything else for this year. And it's crazy because we're only, what, 29 days into our mastermind together. And my business is already peaking new revenues, everything just from following one person and staying focused. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, quick plug here for uh, my book, The Small Business Lifecycle, because most of the things that you just mentioned here, I talk about in stage one of businesses, and it's just what we do. We, we go out and, you know, we don't pop out of the womb knowing how to start a business. And um, usually in stage one, what, what we end up doing is all this sort of we think is hard work, but it's actually easier work to avoid finding, I, I would say it this way now, product market fit. Like, did you create something that somebody will buy? That is really the question that you have to figure out. And if you haven't created something that someone will buy, your job is to figure out what that is. And then you can grow and scale and then you're having the, the good fun times that Christina is having right now, right? Um, so if you are an entrepreneur or if you're thinking about becoming one and you find yourself in sort of that um, – I won't call it a wasteland, but you call yourself in that in that period of time that Christina just mentioned. It's normal. It's absolutely normal, right? Um, and it's normal, and get through it as soon as as quickly as you can because it's an actually a really expensive period of your business. Um, <laughs> so, part of it's part of the journey, though. I like to think of it as a honeymoon, not like a wasteland. Yeah. When you first get married, and I haven't been married, but you know, lots of friends who are I work in the wedding industry, and the first year of your marriage is notoriously one of the most difficult, right? Like you're getting used to this person in a way that allegedly you haven't known them before. And, you know, it's this time when it's really exciting and everything's new and fun and special, but it also is very difficult and challenging in ways that you probably weren't expecting. Um, and then in hindsight, you're like, Oh, that was such a good year of my life or whatever. But yeah, I, I would agree. It is an expensive period, especially if you have a message that isn't quite resonating or a product that's not quite selling. Yeah. It's very frustrating. Well, and it's frustrating for another reason. I call it the deinstitutionalization period that happens shortly <laughs> after sort of that three months when you go on your own. Like at three months is awesome. Like you get to yeah. do your own, you get to wake up at 11 and, you know, <laughs> rub your cat for three hours. And then maybe like it's super cool. But then about three months in, it's like, I actually have no idea how to set goals for myself. I have no idea how to manage my time, right? When I don't have any constraints. I And so there's that period where I call it the deinstitutional de period, right? Because um, your entire life up until then, there's been someone that's told you to be somewhere at eight o'clock. They've rung a bell when it's time to go to the new thing. They've told you when to go home or when school's not there. Then we graduate and we go to college and it's some version of the same thing, right? Here's your degree pathway. Here's your classes. Here's your guidance. Here's your career. And then you go off on your own and um, it's not quite there. And so I'm wondering because something that um, I see happen a lot for folks is, especially when you're driven or ambitious, right? Up until, say, you started your business, 
there's always some external goal out there of like, if I, I got to take these classes, got to pass the exam, I got to do the thing, right? And there comes a point in which you have to start defining your own goals um, and using that as a playbook. How has that process been for you? It's been interesting. So I have a client and her name is Laura Casey. She's got a really great resource um, called PowerSheets. And I love using that to help define kind of where I've been and where I'm going. So that's something that I use on a regular basis. Um, I obviously am, I'm a stationary geek. I I'm like, how does the pen feel on the paper? So I have to use something like that. Um, I mean, I just, I'm so sur literally surrounded by notebooks right now of like just beautiful quality. So I'm just constantly writing and putting my brain down on paper because that's really helpful for me. Um, to the point where everybody makes fun of me because I'm the 29 year old with a backpack and a pencil pack and three different notebooks and a laptop in my backpack. And they're like, Hey, Christina, we need a piece of paper and a purple pen. And I'm like, great. What, you know, what size paper and what pen do you want? Um, so just a total nerd about it, but also, <laughs> um, really, really dedicated to, just being myself and putting all of the things that I'm trying to think about or trying to like work through, um, on paper during the process, because I need to just trust that at some point, like I might not have all the funnels like sequenced or, or funnel steps altogether at this point, but I just have to trust that that's going to happen. So it might it usually takes me like 20 iterations. I wish I could say I'm better at this, but like it usually takes me about 20 iterations to really get a good sales funnel on paper for myself and for my products. Um, and so I'm just constantly like writing down new, I guess, things, goals, sequences, ideas, um, and then just trusting that eventually they're going to pan out into the way that they need to in order to support my business. And they always do. So that's something that's come with time is like seeing how that process evolves and then watching the results actually come to fruition out of it because that's hard in the beginning. You don't have that. I understand. But, um, but yeah, so I think as far as setting goals, I'm not like, uh, I'm not like somebody who puts aside two weeks at the end of the year to go through everything and review it and see what I'm going to do for the next year. I really can only look about three months realistically into the future, um, like six month big level high planning and then like three months nitty gritty, like sequence planning. I'm not one of the people that can look at my entire year and have my whole launch sequence planned out and all that. So I think creating goals to match what you're okay with, like any of you who need permission out there, you have my permission to like not plan a whole year in advance. Um, but like setting just something and having some kind of direction, creating that own moment in your life where you're your own boss is really helpful for me at least. Yeah, what I would say about that is strategic planning is a skill, right? <laughs> yeah. um, and I know that sounds obvious, but it's, again, one of those skills you don't learn, like unless you've gone through, say, military training, right, which I have, right? So I, I had a leg up when it comes to that. But for most people, you don't learn strategic planning. And this is why... You're, you're so right. Like, I just want to... Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you no, too much, ahead. but I... And th maybe this is going to sound dumb to some of your listeners, but I did not know that financial... Um, like fiscal responsibility and like financial planning was a skill that you had to learn just like strategic planning. So I think there's these things in life that you just think you should know because people just know them. Like you just know what a Roth IRA is or whatever, but you're so right, Charlie. Yeah. It's, it's, and that's the beauty of it though, right? It's a skill. 
right? And which means it's learnable by normal people, right? It's not that, you know, there's someone out there that has like just woke up and they knew how to do strategic planning. Like, no, that's not the way or financial planning or copywriting or whatever these things are. And so that's part of what you have to understand when you're going on the journey um, from, you know, especially from a um, profession where they do instill sort of the core fundamentals in there. You learn the core, like in Christina's case, she learned for the core fundamentals of being an attorney. She was trained that, right? So she can do that pretty well out of the gate. Now, obviously they didn't teach her how to do trademarks, which is frustrating, but you know, but there's no one, unless you go through certain training environments that teaches you financial planning, that teaches you strategic planning, that teaches you management and delegation, that teaches you all these types of things. So kind of to that point, the thing that you realize is until you learn that skill, six months is a really good time frame for folks to plan against because it's, it's right outside of most people's ability to be able to see what's going on right outside of um, Christina used right outside. The, I think she used sequencing, which would be basically the same thing. Like you can sequence up to about three months for most people. Outside of that, it gets all wishy-washy and turns into bullshit land. Like, you you don't know if it's going to work out or not, so you don't really commit to it. Um, so, you know, if year-long or 18 months or three-year planning is not a strong suit for you, there are ways to learn about it. I know a guy who teaches it. But aside from that, <laughs> aside from that, six months, it's okay. It gets you where you're trying to go. And that's the important point. That's what a plan is supposed to do. It plan gets you where you're trying to go. And if you can only see out six months get to six months and replan from there. Yeah, I, I love that. But also it's just, you have to find what works for you as the undermining, like the underlying theme and everything that you're talking about, I'm talking about. Um, and it's, it's really liberating, but also very frustrating at the same time, because it's so much easier for us, you or I to stand in front of our respective audiences or this audience together and tell them, Oh, just follow steps one, two, three, and you will have a successful X, Y, Z. And it just doesn't work that way. So it's really frustrating in the sense that you can do it a million different ways and still arrive at the same results. Or, um, it can also be seen as really liberating that you don't have to follow this one plan. You can just kind of follow general principles like the ones in your book and then get to hopefully a happier, more successful result if you're actually doing it with good intentions. Yeah. The benefit here is um, in certain in certain industries, we call it just-in-time learning, right? <laughs> and that you can – I mean, in the course of a week or two, you could learn mostly what you need to learn about certain things if you learn how to do just-in-time learning, right? So you don't have to – go through four years of entrepreneurial MBA stuff is like, Oh, I really need to learn how to do a sales page. You know what? Tons of resources on how to do that. And I need to learn how to do this. There's tons of resources if you just know. And that's the benefit. That's the huge sort of upshot here. But what gets in the way a lot of times is mindset. So I'm going to switch a little bit here um, and talk about this whole fear thing that we have as, as creative folks and entrepreneurs when it comes to the legal stuff, right? It's like it's all fine and good until the attorneys get involved or until legal stuff gets involved. And then all of a sudden, um, lots of folks become helpless. I'm going <laughs> to go that far, right? It's sort of a learned helplessness when it comes to legal stuff. Like, oh, scary, not going to touch it. Or... Oh, scary. I'm going to take it super seriously. Right. And yeah. so, um, as I, as I sort of open up the episode, I mentioned that, um, one of the things that I love about your approach to it is that you see, um, you see this legal stuff as a way of enhancing relationship and enhancing sort of, uh, business outcomes. So tell, tell me a little bit more about that. 
Sure. Yeah. I, I mean, you nailed it is that people either have this house all in order. And um, what I tend to find is that people are so cautious that they won't even get started until they have everything lined up, all the ducks in a row, which I actually don't think is the best approach. I would rather see somebody uh, at the other end of the spectrum, which is most of my trademark clients in my law firm, uh, what they do is they usually start, they have no idea what they're doing. They're just really passionate about something or excited about something. They get out there, they build their following, they start selling some stuff, some courses, products, whatever it might be. And then they come to me three years later and they're like, I'm making $3 million. And I say, cool, where's your S corporation? And they're like, what's that? So um, usually that's the situation that I find people in and they love me because I'm like, oh, well, we can just make this simple tweak to your tax filing stuff and get your intellectual property in order. And all of a sudden you have money, um, like assets that are worth money and you have more money in your pocket from, you know, reducing your tax liability and so forth. So I would rather see people go out there and just do things, even if they're wrong. Um, It's really difficult to go to jail. So I'm not going to say that it's impossible, but that seems to be everybody's fear is that they're going to do like the one thing that's going to, you know, they're going to totally forget that they set up this one entity somewhere and it hasn't paid taxes on something and they're going to go to jail for that. And that's why I have a guide. It's called the don't go to jail guide.com. That's just like, don't go to jail. Here's the basic things that you need in your business and you're going to be fine. Because if people are, um, I, I want to see people getting out there and providing the world with whatever it is that they have to give each and every one of you listening, no matter how trivial or stupid or dumb you think your idea is, someone out there needs it and someone is going to benefit from it. And they're not being helped if you just sit there in your car and listen to this podcast and walk into work in five minutes and don't do anything about your idea. So if you can get out there and just start doing it, even if it's not, you know, every I dotted and every T crossed and every single little legal thing perfectly in order, um, you know, that's more valuable, I think, to the world and to the creative economy than you to just sit on your hands and wait until somebody else has your idea. And then you're like, Oh, darn, now I can't live my dream. <laughs> exactly. And and the thing about it is, is exposure scales, right? So if your business isn't making any money, is not really doing anything, if you get into sort of legal trouble, um, unless it's I, well, Christina, you know better than I, I, in my experience, you have to try really, really hard to get yourself in the amount of legal trouble. Um, when you're just starting out that people think that you need to, like most of the things are going to be within four or five figures at the worst, right? You're not going to go to jail, right? You, you know, might have to pay a fine. So my point is if you're not, if you're scared of all of the risk of sort of legal stuff and somebody suing you and you losing a bunch of money to the tax man or whatever that might be, when you're just getting started, your exposure is really, really low, right? Unless you do something egregiously stupid, which I think you, ha- you have to try really hard, Christina. You <laughs> well, t- you, you do and you don't. So here's like two practical tips mm-hmm. to take away. Um, the fastest way to get yourself into legal trouble in today's environment social media climate is to take a screenshot of someone's photo and post it to your Instagram page or go on Pinterest and use Pinterest like your, um, like your stock photo site. So that's a great way to get into trouble. And I would know that because that's what we do for our clients. We get these images taken down and we get them paid for their use on things like major search engines, uh, which shall remain nameless. But um, yeah, so I, I think it's it's important to to pay attention to others' intellectual property, and it's 
not an excuse if you don't know what copyright law is. So that would probably be the first thing that I educate myself around, which is surprising because most people are like, I want to know what a business license is and an LLC. But that's probably one of the easiest, fastest ways to get yourself into trouble without knowing it. And there is no, um, with copyright law, there, there just, there is no forgiveness. It's either it happened or it didn't. You either infringe someone's copyright or you didn't. Um, so, you know, that's either money or not that you're paying. So it's a really easy way to not pay money if you just ask for permission or use stock photo sites like Creative Market or Stocksy or whatever. Um, and I love asking for permission. I've garnered so many friendships on Instagram. I'm an Instagram girl. Sorry, guys. That's so stereotypical. But uh, I've garnered so many friendships from just reaching out to people and saying, I love this photo. Can I use it? And then we start an online friendship. Sometimes those have evolved offline. Sometimes those people have become affiliates. Um, but anyway, it happens. I've never had somebody say, no, you can't use my photo. Um, and so I get this beautiful feed full of photos that professional photographers have taken and I've stroked their ego by asking if I can use it. They've said yes. And now I have something that would have otherwise landed me in hot water. So that's number one. Number two, I am quite honestly forgetting because I got so excited about copyrights, but I will just say, um, I think it had to do with taxes and the fact that if, um, oh no, this is the other way that people get into trouble early on. If you are not clear on what you expect from your clients and what they can expect from you, that is a great way to get lots of refund requests, um, to get people that aren't satisfied with the services that you provided to initiate chargebacks. And so, you know, instead of, um, it's again, so cliche, but instead of over promising and under delivering, just making sure that you're under promising over delivering and then on the contract girl. So obviously have some kind of contract that memorializes exactly what it is that they need to do and that you need to do. It's both two sides to that story. <laughs> okay. So, um, I'm going to give the disclaimer for Christina. This is not counted as legal device. Please consult your attorney about issues here um, because I'm going to ask a, a real specific question here in the sense sure. that I totally agree. Those are great places to, to end up losing money or end up having to pay money. Um, I still would say though, like, it depends on where you are in the journey, right? If it's still, you're really early, like, I don't know, how many cases have you seen or have you tried where just a newbie misused a picture on Pinterest, you know, and got either a cease and desist or got, you know, got something that was actually significant money that, that was painful for them? Significant money, no, you're right. Usually a scary cease and desist letter is enough. Um, and Honestly, guys, I know this is kind of shocking, but most attorneys are not the biggest DBs you've ever met. So usually what is happening is we know that somebody can't pay and we're not going to waste our money and time, but we do have to do something. You know, it's just that would be irresponsible and negligent of us as a professional not to say something and send a letter. So, yeah, I think it is more likely that you receive a cease and desist. Now, second or third time, I mean, definitely have a microscope uh, microscope on top of you. And that's, that's not going to be taken so nicely. So, um, you know, I think the only place people really get into trouble, too, is Again, you're right, totally an economy of scale. Um, the smaller you are, the less likely it is that you're going to be under this microscope. But you can get into trouble really quickly if you go up against any of the big guys. So um, I work with a lot of stationers, a lot of Etsy sellers. And anytime they come to me and they say, Disney has this new character. Can we like change it around a little bit and put it on a mug? I'm always like, just, you know the answer to that. Please stop asking me. 
So yeah, that's the kind of stuff that you're right. It, it is an economy of scale. Yeah. So my, my whole point there is if that's what's scaring you from getting started, um, it's really one of those like buggy, bo- <laughs> buggy man. What? It, I can't talk today. Buggy man sort of scenarios. <laughs> wow. I need to drink some water. Um, that, that really, I wouldn't say shouldn't keep you there, but the risk and the exposure is not as big as you might think. Um, if you can endure getting an email from a lawyer saying, please take this photo down, you're infringing upon my, co- my client's copyrights. That's mostly what you can anticipate, you know, on that first and on the second one, obviously if the more you sell and the more people are refunding, then it's still based on scale. You sell a hundred things and you get, you know, 30 people asking for refunds. That's a problem. You sell three things, one person asks for a refund. It's not, you know, that sort of thing. So just keep in mind that to Christina's point, better to get out there and start making a ruckus to steal from Seth Godin on that one, right? Better to get out there and start doing something. And then once you start encountering problems, actually addressing them, because one, you can probably afford an attorney at that point, right? Um, you have a legitimate business interest or you're, you're growing concern or whatever legal language they want to use, right? Um, but don't keep it from, you know, you creating something. Um, yeah. And another thing that is really easy to invest in if they're super scared, business insurance. So most business insurance policies don't have an an and intellect, no, I can't talk. And intellectual property, aka IP clause, which is something that people will end up paying extra for, for sure. It'll be more expensive, but um, that covers like copyright, trademark infringement, which often can be accidental. Um, so, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And even if you are still sitting in your car biting your nails, then just invest in some business insurance. <laughs> <laughs> So let's talk about the scary that comes with sending a contract or an agreement to someone, right? And um, you deal with this day in, day out. So I'm going to let you explain it. You know what I'm talking about. Your head's not. So sort of pull us into what the what the situation is and some ways to work through that. Yeah, I think as Americans, who I'm assuming is not all of your audience, but some of them, um, we have this idea of attorneys in our head. And I know because... I had this idea of an attorney in my head for a long time, still do a little bit based on the images that are portrayed in the media. Um, I mean, Arrested Development is my favorite show ever. And so <laughs> if that gives you any idea of what attorneys are like, then um, hopefully that's not your your experience in real life. But what I will say is that we have a very adversarial approach to any kind of legal problem. Um, it's often incredibly formal. So you've either received a cease and desist letter or you've had unfortunate situations happen to you. You're in a divorce. Um, you have a child custody problem. Just really unfortunate situations that are happening to people's lives day in and day out. And that's their only experience with an attorney, either that or on TV. And on TV, everything's super dramatic and someone's always died and it's you know, lots of drama. So that is where we're starting when it comes to legal situations. And as business owners, all of this is new to us. And when we approach the legal side of our business, um, we already talked, you either sweep it under the rug or dress it head on. And if you're a responsible business owner, you take it a step further and you look and you see, how can I actually take this from something that my client who doesn't deal with legal situations ever, I do, because I send a client contract all the time, um, but how, how can I make this a really good experience for them? Because in their mind, they may be approaching it from the other situations that they've had in the past, AKA they only received a contract when something was going terribly wrong or, you know, they, their hand was really being forced into a situation they didn't want to be a part of. I mean, even if the worst legal situation you've encountered is like 
renting an apartment, you know how horrible those agreements are and how you can't change anything. So that's your that's where we're starting. And so what I encourage people to do is to reshape this and just address the elephant in the room with their client and show them how the contract is actually for the client's benefit. Walk them through the scariest clauses in there, such as the cancellation. Show them that you have a cancellation clause, that you have um, experience and professional knowledge around what is going to happen if this doesn't work out. If for whatever reason you're a wedding photographer and God forbid you can't show up on the day of the wedding because you got in a car accident, like what is the situation that that bride will be facing You show them that you're a professional, that you've thought of all of these things in advance, that you've been doing your job long enough, secret, even if you haven't, um, with one of our templates. You show them that you know what you're talking about and that you truly are um, an experienced professional in this area. And so then the final kind of touch point on this that I like to add, one of my clients, um, Jenna Kutcher, She's a photographer and she has an amazing store and I have to give her a shout out. Um, And then Megan Martin Creative also has an amazing store. And both of these women sell client magazines. And this is something that is relatively new to, I think, industries outside of weddings. Um, But what you do with this client magazine is you create it around your brand. You use your images or stock images that at least represent your brand. And then you reiterate or iterate, whichever way you like to say it. Um, you can iterate whatever it is that was really important in your contract, such as the cancellation clause in this beautiful client magazine that isn't scary, that is full of, um, maybe also helpful tips and it can be delivered in PDF format. You can use something like mag cloud to print it. And, um, I'm not paid by any of these things that I've mentioned. So anyway, you can deliver this at the same time that you deliver your contract, which is really effective because now the clients actually read the important things. They've read the cancellation policy. They've read what, um, you know, the, your, your policy is on getting back to them. Like if you, if you're a graphic designer, someone doesn't get back to you for two weeks, that delays your schedule. So not only have they like read it because it's not just in the contract, but they also have read it in a way that feels good and is comfortable for them um, rather than being stuck with this document that they keep telling themselves they don't have the knowledge to go through and read on their own. That's fantastic. Um, what I'm going to, I guess, reiterate here or iterate. No, what, what, I'm, going, <laughs> what, what I'm going to emphasize here is um, it sounds like you're recommending that some portions of the agreement or contract are actually part of the pre uh, part of the sales conversation and not the post sale conversation. Not that you do absolutely. the sale and people say yes. And then you send them the contract. Yeah, absolutely. Use it as a tool. And That's- my, my blog has lots of resources on this because this is absolutely a tool that you can use during the sales process to point out how much more professional and how much more on top of things you are than your competition. Absolutely. And so this is, this will make you, this will give you an incredible leg up as a creative person in the business, because let's be frank, a lot of us creatives are known to be flakes, right? And known um, to be bigger on ideas than on process, right? And so the more that you have, like, this is how we do things. And this is, this is what you can expect and so on and so forth. The more that people realize that they're not just buying an idea or a promise for you, they're buying a proven process for delivering a certain result. Right. And so it's going to make you a better salesperson, but it's also going to make you a better business person at the same time. So, yeah, the the last thing I know we're, we're cutting close on time, but what I want to add really quickly is that this is the first time that your client is going through this most likely. 
they are not getting married for the second time. Usually, I know there's always exceptions. They are not hiring you to do their website for the first time, usually, uh, or they are hiring you for the first time, I should say. Um, so this is the first and maybe only touch point they've had with a service professional in your area. And so you know what the process is like and what the, how this is all going to turn out and it's all going to be fine. But having that extra touch point where you're just walking them through and showing them the stuff that is super, super duh to you is so reassuring and helpful for them. And it just instills a trust that carries through the whole relationship. Yeah. So as a general rule, I would suggest you, I'm not putting this on Christina, but the higher your fees are, the more you'll want to do the contract walk or the agreement walk. Right. Um, because again, if it's a $50 product, maybe not worth the time, right? If it's a $15,000 service or product, definitely worth the time, right? Just it's again, it's going back to that degree of exposure and the higher the price tag involved, the more exposed and unfortunately emotional people are about that particular number. So um, just as a general rule. That's a great rule. Love it. Okay. So, um, Let's imagine you just, you're talking to a client, you just given that conversation <laughs> to them, right? And they're like, you know, you see the head nodding, but there's a but. What are the with like, the client? like with the client or with someone that's just heard all that? Like, okay. what are the three most common buts that you hear when, when you say that? And how might we address that? I think, okay, so I'll try to list the three and then I'll go through them. I think the first one would be, but I'm just not a good people person. I'm just, I'm really shy and I'm, I'm really introverted and it's hard for me to have confrontation. Um, that is one that I actually hear a lot. And to me, I would say, then do what you can with what you have. That's kind of the motto that I want to tattoo on everything. And eventually I will like, this doesn't mean anything to you guys, but like I'll have aprons with calligraphy and it'll say, do what you can with what you have on it. And I'll give it out to all my clients. Um, but I, I want people to do that because if, if you're, I'm actually very introverted, I'm not shy, but I'm introverted. Um, and if you're feeling like you're not good at confrontation, I would question whether that's a story that's going on in your head. Um, and if there's something deeper there, because most likely there is. And if even if there is, and you don't really want to dig in and do the deep work and the personal stuff to figure that out, then just do what you can with what you have. Send them a PDF and an email. And if you can't send somebody a PDF and an email, I'm sorry, you can't be a business owner. So you don't have to have that conversation face-to-face. -face. It doesn't have to be FaceTime, Skype, um, in person, whatever. But if, if all you can do is make a phone call or send a PDF that accompanies your contract, that's fine. I mean, there's tools like useloom.com. You can do a video walkthrough, like whatever it is that you can do, just do that. Um, I think the next excuse that I would get the, probably the next two are like time and money. Like, Oh, I don't have time. Like these clients, they keep wasting my time and not booking me. And then I never hear from them again. Um, so as you're walking a potential client through the process and you know, if you're worried at all that they are going to be wasting your time, that they're just tire kickers and you're taking them through this this client magazine and this contract, and it's all for, for nothing, then I would take a look earlier on in your sales process and see how you're qualifying those leads. Because if this is, if you're not having, I have like a 70% close rate on the people that approach me from the very start for a, a trademark. So I know that's high for attorneys, especially, but I think it's because I qualify people so early and I'm so unapologetically myself on any channel that these people are finding me through. So I think people are just scared to do that. And that's, I mean, you want to 
stop having people that are ghosting on you and opening up 20 million tabs in wedding wire and checking out everybody's profile. This is how you do it. You, you just are unapologetically yourself. You qualify the leads. And then finally money and money can always be made. It's something that is just a mindset issue. So, um, you know, I've, I've had times in my life where I'm very well off. I've had times in my life where I haven't had anything. Um, and I think it's just literally a mindset issue and figuring out what your priorities are and making the things that, you know, will advance your business or your life forward, just making that a priority. I've never seen a friend who, um, I don't care how many finals or, you know, how many big work product projects she had, um, that wouldn't go out on a date with somebody if she thought that he was like really phenomenal, right? Like that's because he's a priority to her. So you already do this probably just in other areas of your life. So just look for ways to prioritize either making money or saving money so that you can spend it on the things that you want or need as a priority. That's fantastic. Um, I'm going to, double down on the third thing that she mentioned as far as investments, because um, what we often do is there are different price points where we have different behaviors around and then there are different types of things, right? So we will do things like go out to dinner with our friends and spend 50 bucks and not think about it. But then if something costs us 200 bucks, all of a sudden it's a really, really big deal, right? When it's like, basically you can sit out of that activity for six weeks and you've got the 200 bucks that you need to, right? And granted it's gone from personal to business, but there are oftentimes, especially if you're in a creative profession that, that has tools, I'm going to pick up on the wedding photography thing. Like you can buy so much photography equipment and so many electronics things. And like you end up with this huge thing, right? But won't spend 200 bucks for a contract or, you know, won't spend, you know, $300 to talk to an attorney about your, about your, pol about your policy. So just be very careful that you're applying apples to apples to the purchases that you make. And just understand that it's more of a mindset block. Sometimes it, it might be that you're scared to talk to a lawyer and you don't want to, you don't want to do that. And, but the story you tell yourself is you can't afford it. Right. And so just be very careful about that, whether it's a accountant, whether it's a bookkeeper, whether it's an attorney, whether it's a business strategist. I, I think we just have some um, faulty thinking when it comes to the ways that we, we might make decisions around those. All right, Christina. So, you know, it's one of those things where I've really enjoyed our conversation. I'm also looking at the time and saying, like, wow, we we've got to go. So based upon everything we've talked about thus far, um, what would you leave our listeners with as, as far as an invitation or a challenge goes? That's such a powerful question. I would challenge your listeners to do one thing every single day for the next week, whether that takes one minute of your time or an hour of your time that moves your business forward. So that could be listening to another one of Charlie's podcasts. It could be going to my blog and reading one article. It could be signing up for that course that you've been putting off that you know is going to help you. Um, so I would just challenge you to do one thing every single day for a week. And then if you can continue on beyond that, then that's all the more power to you. Christina, thanks so much for joining me. It's been a blast. Thank you, Charlie. It's really been a pleasure to be here. <laughs> All right, listeners, so you heard it from Christina. What will you do over the next week to move your business, your creative project, or your career forward? Think from a strategic point of view. What is actually going to either disrupt something or improve on something in an iterative way um, that drives you forward? Remember that this is a marathon. Again, whether we're talking about businesses, whether we're talking about creative projects, or whether we're talking about careers. So take that next step tomorrow and the day after and see what happens in a week. Until next time. Stand tall. 
Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that will help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.